Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, as you've written um, your holy scripture for our learning, I pray now that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, living and active as it is, that you would turn our hearts, um, turn our affections um, towards you so that we would be given a, uh, uh, a new heart, a new mind, a new sense, a new orientation towards you, that our faith would be living and active, matching your word and its work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, reading, uh, not a reading, applies um, the scripture um, from Cramner, Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, from his 1552 service for Holy Communion, right after the uh, minister stands and pronounces a declaration of forgiveness following the confession. We hear these words, well known to most of us, if not all of us in this room. Hear what comfortable words our Savior Christ saith to all them that truly turn to him. Come unto me, all ye that travail, and are and be heavy laden, and I shall refresh you. So God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. Hear also what St. Paul saith, This is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Hear also what St. John saith, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto the Lord God, it is meet right so to do. So those are the words, um, two parts, what we know is the comfortable words, um, and then the sursum corda, which is just the fancy word in the liturgy language for, uh, for lift up your hearts. Um, Thomas Cramner, what I intend to do these next couple of weeks, just because I've been thinking about Cramner a lot and wanted a chance to teach on it, and so here's Michael, and so I'm going <laughs> to let him do it. Because um, I've been thinking about him and just wanted a chance to cement it for myself, and so you know, thanks for coming along. Thomas Cramner, well known to many of us, especially now that we have Cramner House, and so suddenly a lot of us now know, okay, so the N before M, and somehow it's Cramner, and not Cramner, and there's all sorts of strange uh, ways of having to, uh, to, to move our lips to make it work. He was a, a remarkable man in so many ways, and so what I hope to do is say a little bit about his life, a little bit about the today, a little bit about the world in which he, which preceded him and into which he began his ministry, uh, uh, a little bit of the English Reformation, uh, moving up to um, his death, and then next week we'll actually get into the comfortable words themselves and what they are actually. There's a little booklet outside um, by a man named uh, Ashley Null, no stranger to many of us here, a friend of the Advent as we like to throw that moniker out, um, called Divine Allurement, Cramner's Comfortable Words by Ashley Null. It's only $6. We got it um, because I thought it would be a nice stocking stuffer for people like my father, for instance. So if you have someone in your life who's grown up in the church um, or maybe who hasn't, but you want to have you know, a substantial and very short, even though it's this many pages, um, a good bit of it or uh, there's a short preface by somebody else and a bibliography of somebody named Peter Toon. It's probably only seven pages is all the, the part for a, that Ashley wrote on the comfortable words. And it's really helpful. It's got a great pastoral sensitivity with some, some real erudition, uh, as you would expect from him, who's a, a research 
theologian. Anyway, so moving through today, a little bit about Cramner and the world in which he was up to his death, a very moving death, so a little bit of a lot of, a lot of history, which then gives us the necessary uh, tools to approach properly what he did and what his genius was as he reformed the liturgy in a, in a, in a massively insightful, pastoral, prescient way. And we'll look at that next week. That's what I intend to do, or hope to do anyway. So with Cramner, um, he was born in 1489. This is uh, about three years, if memory serves, after Henry VIII, um, who was his king, uh, came to the throne. War of Roses, Lancaster and York and all that business was going on in England, a very, very bloody and unstable time. And then Cramner, to the lower level of the gentry, to the nobility, he was just barely hanging on with the right sort of pedigree and blood, as it were, uh, was born into a, uh, a very unstable time in England's history. He matriculated to Cambridge, I believe it was. Um, it took a long time to, to, to work through it. You, you matriculated early um, once you had some, some privileges to be educated at all, which his father worked hard to allow that to happen. He went to Cambridge, um, took about eight years to get his, uh, his bachelor's. Typically, it would take about about five, we're not really sure why that happened. And then when he finished, something that's not known very much about Cramner, which, and, and, and we just know the fact, and we really don't know anything else. He married, was married for only about uh, a year or two. Wife became pregnant, and then in childbirth, both his first wife and child died. And at that point, um, I don't think we even know what he was hoping to do. I don't know if it was to, to go into the law or something else. But then he went back to the newly founded Jesus College and, uh, and, uh, and entered with the intention of, of entering in for holy orders. And so then entered into the priesthood because the church hasn't yet been reformed and it'd be anachronistic to say the Roman Catholic Church, but into the church, um, which would be the vow of celibacy and everything else. And so even there, full stop, you know, I can't not with my pastor, counselor, you know, Gilcracky hat, say, here's a man acquainted with sorrow and grief. Well, there's a story. There's certainly a story there. There would be a story today in 2015. There was certainly a story there in what was probably 15, 18 or something like that, uh, where uh, after, a, a, in some ways, a difficult childhood, having to live up to expectations, and he would describe an abusive tutor uh, which affected his ability to memorize long passages, which would be very normal at the time, and then the prescience and the providence of God, rather than memorizing like the entire Psalter, uh, which would be very common. All 150 Psalms, just by memory, or whole swaths of Augustine or Jerome or some other people like that. This would be the scholastic method. He then, because of that, would say, I became almost by necessity... Um, uh, a subscriber to the new humanism, that which was emerging in the Renaissance, but then was very importantly um, coming up in the church. I know this is very dorky, but I really kind of get off on this. This is kind of fun. So Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was the, the key figure in the, in, the, in the newly developing humanism movement. This was, of course, Luther's foil uh, later in 1525 when Erasmus had written a few years earlier on the freedom of the will, and Luther responded with the bondage of the will. That's the same guy, Erasmus. But Erasmus wasn't a bad guy, especially early, because he went back to the sources. Ad fontes was the great cry of the, uh, of the proto-reformers, of the pre-reformers, and then the early reformers, to say, we need to go not back to the church fathers, not back to the pope, not back to others 
who will mediate the gospel. Well, that wasn't even the word yet. Who will mediate the, um, uh, the access to God through a sanctifying grace. We need to go back to the source. Why go to a human institution or to another man when we can go back to the fount itself, the living word, or himself, the living God known in Jesus Christ? And that was Erasmus. And so he came and and uh, it was one of the very first, he and another guy named Reuschland in Germany, um, but really it was Erasmus who took the, uh, went back to the texts, the Greek text, and then later on the Hebrew texts, and came up with a real and substantial uh, uh, translation of the scriptures. He, he put the, the, the Greek text together again in a proper way. And it was that that Luther used to make the... Uh, uh, the, the German Bible and that Tyndale used to make the English Bible with Miles Coverdale and so on. So anyway, huge figure, and uh, and, uh, uh, and and Erasmus, not Erasmus, and Cramner um, was taken by this as he went back to Jesus College. It was also newly founded on these humanistic principles, just an educational philosophy, like the new math that our kids are learning. This was the new learning. Uh, they even called it that contrasted to the scholastic method that was there. And it really kind of shows up in the providence of God where when Cramner would say, so I can't do this, and that was all relative to his day. I mean, they would have a, a mind to memorize and that would put us to shame. So he would begin to, just like Philip Melanchthon um, in Wittenberg, he'd be the, the primary one who would do all this. We're going to get to other stuff soon. I'm not going to do this the whole time, I promise. Um, into what was called commonplaces. Um, and Philip Melanchthon in 1521, this is when Luther was in, in exile. Some of y'all were in the, the, the Luther class that Mark and I did a few months ago. Uh, when, when the cat was away, the mice started to play, and Melanchthon started writing on his own. He, he pulled all this together into the loci communis, or the commonplaces, where he would take what we do now, and we just take verses of Scripture. If you wanted to talk about the sovereignty of God, you would take verses or very short passages of Scripture and begin to collate them. And he would put all these down here. And if you want to do you know, the doctrine of man, he would put them all under here. And the, the, uh, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he'd put all those verses here. Well, that was really new. I know it sounds so, so obvious to us now, um, but it was Melanchthon uh, and, and, uh, and Erasmus and Cramner and some others like this who started to do that. And that's going to be really important when we look at the comfortable words in earnest next week because there's Melanchthon doing his thing. And this is Ashley Knoll's real insight, one of his real insights. There's Melanchthon arranging the scripture for worship where he takes in a gospel commonplace. It's sort of the English Reformation's four spiritual laws as Ashley Knoll will take it. And he will look and take the four... Um, uh, comfortable words and start with the human longing, the felt need of, I'm so tired. Well, come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then the longing, that's the human longing, the human, and then the God longing, the longing for, of, that's within the Godhead himself to save. And then he, he describes that, that longing within God, within John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end, that all that would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then going up, if that's the human need, the felt need, the need on the ground, as it were, then from the, the, the top down, the more objective and uh, uh, perspective of our need um, for, a, uh, 
for a savior, he would then look at uh, the word from 1 Timothy, a word which converted Thomas Bilney, in fact, another English reformer, that said, if any man sin, we have an advocate. No, that's not the one. Um, that this is a trustworthy and true saying that all men, um, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, uh, this is a true saying worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Um, if it's the first part is the felt need, the second is the, the, uh, the supply of that need. And then the, the top of the spire, as it were, uh, God working within himself to satisfy that need, that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteousness, righteous, the perfect propitiation for our sin. So we'll look at all that again next week. That's, a, that's an example of, in fact, a, a commonplace um, which comes out of the, uh, uh, the humanism. So that's all the boring part. Um, Cranmer would then go forth um, uh, and enter the priesthood, uh, but was really uh, in Oxford, a Cambridge don, just a lecturer. That's what that word means, just lecturing at Cambridge. And then Henry, he doesn't, Henry wanted a son. If you remember that, typically it shows up how, that Henry was you know, a lustful lad, we should say. Um, uh, well, that wasn't a problem for English kings. It wasn't then, maybe it's not even now, um, that if, you know, there are other ways to satisfy that need rather than divorce and marry. What he was really pressed on was the need for a son. He wanted a male heir, and he had Catherine of Aragon. Uh, for 20-something for years. Um, a good marriage by all accounts, but then soon it became evident that this wasn't going to produce a male heir. I, was, anyway, I could go on about that. It's a very interesting story. And so now it became the king's great matter. And, and Cranmer, a very humble man by all accounts, just sitting over there in his tower, lecturing you know, undergraduates, so to speak, he said, well, you, the king should just do this. Um, and he came up with an outline of a, of a way of gathering sort of a gospel commonplaces, as it were, a, uh, a theological defense for how Henry might divorce Catherine, uh, all based upon a reading out of Leviticus, because um, he married his brother's wife, his deceased brother's wife, Catherine. Um, so all that's to say, uh, Henry got word of this and, uh, and a complete surprise um, for all sorts of political reasons. Uh, Henry then writes, uh, Henry then first sends Cramner to Germany um, to be an envoy, to be a, uh, an ambassador is what we would call it now. And then while he was there, Cramner met another woman. Remember, he'd already married once and had a, had a child, and, and the woman and the child died in childbirth. But now he meets a, uh, another woman, uh, the niece of Andreas Osiander. That's another reformer in Germany. Why is that important? Um, well, we can read into that very specifically because Osiander was a very angular person, really doctrinally sort of a hardliner, as it were. And Osiander certainly wouldn't have released his daughter, his, his niece to marry because he was the patriarch of the family unless he was fully satisfied that Cramner had become a Protestant. And so as he goes off to Germany, he falls under, as a humanist, going back to the sources, now tying that up with what Luther and Melanchthon and, and, and Bullinger and others in Germany are pulling together. Uh, and he gets swayed by not only the new teaching of humanism, but now the new, uh, the new um, understanding of the, of the good news of the gospel. Uh, and so he marries uh, Osiander's niece 
puts her in a crate uh, and and goes back to England where she, this may be apocryphal, we're not really sure, and then she goes back to England in a luggage cart, in a a luggage crate because it was a secret marriage. Very few knew of it even back then as Henry summoned him back to say, I want you to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. The jump from being just a humble university lecturer to being an envoy to now being the Archbishop of Canterbury. That's the early story of Thomas Cramner as he now comes back to England with a wife that few people know about uh, that he met in Germany and he begins his work. So thoughts there? That's just kind of an introduction to Thomas Cramner for anybody that's a history buff. Yeah. Well, almost, not quite. Um, This was 1533. (laughs) Many were starting to have mistresses. Well, uh, quite a few had mistresses over on the continent People were marrying already. All that had happened, but it hadn't really come over to to, Germ- to England yet. Uh, Henry liked that because for Henry, anything that uh, consolidated power—that's what he wanted. Um, he was very because he and, and not all bad. He remember he was coming out of that. He wanted order, predictability, and stability because he came out of the War of the Roses and all that sort of business. Uh, and so anything which consolidated power and the threat to the power was the emperor and the pope. Uh, and so Henry would have been open to it if or as he found out about it. And within three years, if I remember right, my dates, um, uh, it was okay then for priests to marry in England. So it was all, the writing was on the wall. Um, within a year of, of Henry's coming, within a year of Cramner's coming back to England, uh, the Act of Supremacy was passed that allowed Henry to be the supreme head of all England. That's where the English Church was in form Catholic, but no longer under the influence of the Pope. And so it was it was not yet a Protestant Church. That would be after Henry's death, uh, under Cramner's real sort of strategic leadership. Um, so it was kind of okay that he married, but but kind of not. And so he kept her a secret. Good question. Was it always a secret? Was it well then, and we don't really know why. I mean, he, she, she's not part of the narrative. When he would, like, he would have a house outside of London, uh, and and he would go back and forth, and she typically wouldn't travel with him into London, even later, when it would have been acceptable for her to be at court or something else like that. Uh, maybe, maybe we don't really know. Maybe that was just because, by all accounts, he was a humble man, um, and he just kind of liked having his home, you know, he just, what we'd call boundaries. <laughs> he wanted to keep his boundaries. Nope, that's her. I don't want to bring her to court. Well, there's all sorts of machinations and maneuverings and, you know, it just got crazy when you go to court. Um, not really, we don't really know why. You know, it, it seems like this parallel between Gosh, I don't know anything about that. But what, how, how so? Um, well, you've got, you know, two sects of Islam are fighting to the death. Hmm. That's right, that's right. Yep. War of the Roses, Protestants and the Catholics. Yep, yep. And then Protestants and Protestants. That's then the very uh, ignominious history of really the first generation of Protestants. Um, really first and a half is, uh, okay, we got rid of Rome. Now what do you believe about the Eucharist? Uh, burn him, you know. And then we just, they just, so many Protestants killed other Protestants. Within 50 years, 40 years of the uh, uh, of 
it's hard to say when the start of the Reformation, say 1520, by 1560, there were all sorts of disputes, bloody disputes, about um, mainly about the Eucharist. Uh, real presence, kind of presence, no presence, that sort of thing. So, yeah, there's nothing new under the sun. I would say that's true. Do you suspect there was any uh, guile in Cranmer when he's at Oxford in working out this theological justification? I mean, was it a pastime or a hobby? He didn't have to publish it, but he made it known to the king that, you know, here, here's a way that this can work. Sure. Was he uh, attempting to promote himself professionally in any way? What's your sense yeah. of what he was up to? Well, I'd be relying heavily on Ashley, Null, and then also Fitzsimmons, Alliston. Those are my two sort of primary sources for how I'm sort of brought in under Cramner, and then a book, big book, by Dearman McCullough, if you're interested. Uh, Guile, not much. Um, convinced Protestant, uh, convinced Protestant who was very wise about what was possible. Yes. Um, uh, he, he wasn't a, a timid man. You know, he often gets the charge of syncophant. Um, that's the word, that's really the only place I ever see that word written is when I'm reading about Thomas Cramner and some uh, some people would want to say, oh, he's just a syncophant, which just means a yes man to Henry. That's just a big fancy word for yes man. Well, I think that's very unfair. Um, Cramner certainly had a sense of where his head was on his shoulders and to keep it uh, while still exerting pressure towards real Protestant reform. He did that at several stages uh, with Henry, with John Fisher, with Stephen Gardner. Those are some, some conservative, at that time, conserving the Catholic traditional teachings. You'd call those traditionalists or conservatives. Uh, and you would call um, Cramner an evangelist, for instance, or an evangelical. Um, uh, remember, you, you make a misstep there and you died. I mean, it was really that that bloody. I was listening to somebody recently, um, and he equated it to uh, terrorist cells. That's jarring, but he's probably not wrong. Uh, William Tyndale, for instance, um, who's the great English translator of the scriptures into English, and we still, at 90% of the King James Version, comes out of William Tyndale's pen, the New Testament anyway. Uh, we, we have very little knowledge of, of how and what he did. He would enter into a town in one direction, he would leave in the other, just so he wouldn't have anybody sort of following on his tail where he came from and where he was going. Uh, they didn't leave a lot of records, just like a terrorist cell doesn't leave, you know, okay, I called this meeting to order, who's the secretary, and write down the meeting. You don't have that. You don't do that. Very subterfuge. But his writing, um, we do have, in, uh, in the form of annotations, uh, which is marginal notes in a book, which you can read into and really see what his strategy was and how he was trying to form. And then Henry dies in 1547, and within uh, two years, we have a new prayer book, 1549, where, um, uh, which moves the, 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 the prayer book into a, the first prayer book, into a decidedly Protestant direction. And then in 1552, Massive ships, even with that. That's what I read from, where from what was there five years previous to what he had, plus all sorts of acts of parliament. Because for to do anything, Cramner had to know when to apply pressure and when to pull off, and what was possible. He didn't have the luxury of, say, Calvin in Geneva, where it was sort of you know all bets were on because it was uh, easy to do. He he had to be really wise politically, and he loved his king. I learned this just recently. You know, we see these pictures with his long beard. He, he, when Henry died, who was an awful man in some ways, um, but it was complicated, that's a better word. 
Uh, it's possible Cramner was there holding his hand. I get really emotional when I act. I don't know why, but I think about this. Cramner was there holding his hand, this man who had killed so many of Cramner's friends. Uh, and it's reputed, we don't really know this, but Cramner's last words to Henry were, do you put your faith in the living, do you put your trust in the living faith of Jesus Christ? And some said Henry squeezed Thomas's hand. I think that's very moving. And from that point forward, Cramner never shaved. Isn't that interesting? That long beard that you see, it's only because he loved his king and for the rest of his life, because that's a big deal. We don't appreciate that. But loyalty to the king was seen as a biblical virtue. In that point in England's history, as the primary biblical virtue, obedience. Wrong or right, um, that's what it was. And he never shaved. And then Henry died, and, uh, and reform, massive reform, began to take place in Parliament, and then also in the prayer book revisions, and that's where the book changed. There was uh, the translations of the scriptures and the English, which now were um, uh, more massively distributed. The, uh, the, the liturgical changes happened. Uh, the monasteries, which had already started to be dissolved, were, were, were completely done so. Um, a lot of financial pressure happened. And then... Um, uh, Edward dies, the young king, uh, in what, 1553, I think it is. Um, and then, uh, uh, no, well, shoot, I've gone on way too long. Um, let's talk a little, we'll get back to that, because I want to talk about his death, because I find it very helpful. Because there's some ways, just like what you were saying, Jim, what, what's old is new, and what's new is old, and nothing new is under the sun. It's all the same. We can look at whether it's Shiites and Sunnis or or uh, Protestants and Protestants, or Protestants and Catholics, or whatever else. Uh, what was this world that Cranmer turned from and went towards when he took humanism and then the new good news that was emerging in the gospel when he went to, to, to Germany uh, for those three years where he was an ambassador for England? Uh, what started, if I had a board, I'd write on this. I feel very much like a teacher right now. This is totally like a college class. I don't know why. Anyway, like I said, I've been thinking about it. I think this is very modern. This is actually a lot of contemporary Christianity. Not around here, and I don't get outside the walls of the Advent very much, unfortunately, but, but you all do, and so maybe you'll recognize this. That what starts with fear, and what is sometimes called attrition. Contrition contrasted to contrition. What's the difference? Attrition theologically understood, is uh, a love of God for fear of punishment. Um, and so we're just afraid of burning in hell, uh, afraid of the fires, which is why they started just before this period in history to burn people, because it was a visual reminder for what heretics, because heretics were the ones who were burned. This is what's going to happen to you for, for, for at least several thousand years in purgatory, if you're lucky, if not for all time in hell. Uh, and so it moves from that place of stirring up uh, fear, satisfactory fear, out of fear of punishment, which then would, in order to maintain a little bit, this is all sort of where it happened uh, right before um, Cramner took a, a left turn. But these were the people who he was fighting, and like Stephen Gardner and, uh, and John Fisher, that with a little special help of God, so in what we later call provenient grace, God is our co-pilot, you know, just a little bit of help from my friend that God sort of gives me just, you know, kind of blows on the ember and gets a little bit of flame going. So that's that, which then does what? 
allows the sanctifying grace which makes one pleasing. And that was a phrase that was very pregnant in those times where sanctification would precede justification. And that was absolutely what they understood. Well, it's still very much in the human heart today. This is what you would see uh, where I have that little breath of God which blows uh, a little ember into a fire and it's just enough for me to get my act together because now I've got a sanctifying grace which can make me pleasing if I do what? If I choose. So you have grace and then choice and now if I choose then I will merit the justifying righteousness of God. How long will that last? As long as I go back to choice and keep meriting, choice and keep meriting, choice and keep meriting. But then something happens, a pretty girl walks by and I oh, done. And now I'm out. And then I have to go all the way back out of fear and attrition and wait for that special help of God for the same sort of cycle. There's absolutely no assurance and that was planned. Why? Because it's a great way to keep people in power. Like if y'all look to me as your priest and your pastor and I preached that Sunday in, Sunday out and, and, and sort of built up the fire hot enough where you really felt like I got to get my act together and, and stay on this, what's a good thing that I would then ask for? Money in order to keep you uh, beholden to the institution because I'm holding over the big stick. Some of that's unfair, some of that's not unfair at all. That's the language that comes out. Cramner said that's not, that's not right at all in lots of ways. Um, he and others uh, turned that idea on its head. Where then did he go? Having heard this forgiveness, this once and for all, um, Cramner and the other reformers took the word assurance and really built that up. That we can be assured that there is no special help of God. It's the only help of God. And so he began with others to subscribe to what became known as sola fideanism. Sola fide, faith alone, which justifies and then produces, produces sanctification. That uh, the glory of God is to, that God's glory is to love the ungodly. That would be a summary statement of Cramner's theology. The glory of God is to love the ungodly, as opposed to what? Um, well, you know, I'm an Alabama fan, so there was the game last night. The glory of God is this great scene at the end of the game where Jake Coker's runs over while everybody else is celebrating, and he finds his mom in the stands, and she leans over, and they have this, like, two-minute hug. Now, I think that's, like, tear-worthy, too. The glory of a mother is to watch her son win the game. The glory is to get your kid out of, you know, pull-ups, to get your kid, when your, when your kid does really well in school, they get a prestigious scholarship, when they marry the right person, we glory in that. We glory in what is the, the godly, the successful and all that. And Cramner and others with the sola fideanism would say that the glory of God is to love the ungodly, that God is magnified. When you hear the word glory, God like zooms up, Google Earth's, gets really, really big, magnifies. You see him for how he actually is. God reveals. So the Shekinah glory of God, like, oh, I see it. You know, that's why Moses had to be hid from it. Because when we see that glory, when we behold the glory of God, we die. That's the idea in the Old Testament. So the glory of God, how is God known? How is he Google Earth? How is he magnified? To love the ungodly. We know God best 
when we see him loving his enemies, when we see him while we are yet sinning, giving himself up for us in death. And this is Cramner's life and witness, in fact. Going to your good question, Hayes. Um, we read into this and his humility. Where on several occasions, like after Henry's death, what did he do? He could have killed Mary. He should have, from any sort of proper political way. As long as she was around, plots were certainly going to be uh, built around her, a rightful heir of the, the king. Um, but on several occasions, he had that opportunity to at least apply pressure that way, and he didn't do it. He didn't do it because he was a convinced Christian. Now, that's obviously my read. That's a read of several on it. But I think it's reflective of the glory of God loving the ungodly, of which he would consider himself uh, as, a, as Exhibit A. And so where do we see all this? Just a few places um, come out. Gosh, it's time. Um, I'm going to hit pause just after I... I, uh, I leave us with this. Um, Cramner then with all of that in mind what's a word that encompasses that if God's glory is to to love the ungodly God is known in loving those that are unlovely we hear that in his massively repetitive word heart hear how often we hear this word in our in our uh, in our liturgy all of us would hear this almost every week the word heart it runs like a it's sown throughout the liturgy like a red thread, Ashley calls it, um, a crimson, a blood-stained thread, which ties everything together, where the movement, the reformation, is primarily one not of the head, but of the heart. This is Ashley's great summary of, of, uh, of the Philip Melanchthon, as I mentioned, his influence on Thomas Cramner. The, this is his summary of the, the, the anthropology and soteriology. Big words. What does it mean to be a human being? Uh, a sinner and what God has done in Christ. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So as long as the heart remains untouched, as long as the heart is not transplanted, as long as there's not a new heart, the best we can do is something like the old method. Let me scare you enough to get that special help of God so that you can have the sanctifying grace which makes you pleasing enough to choose the right thing so that you can then glory in your choice and merit the grace of God. And as long as you stay in that, before you die, if you're lucky enough, you'll get to go to heaven. Um, the flip of it is uh, the heart. So hear these, the Collect for Purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, that we may perfectly love thee. For what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. So if we have our hearts cleansed, then we may perfectly love thee. That's the prayer. Or sometimes we still do this at Lent, the, uh, the recitation of the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Um, at the end of every commandment, we would all respond, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. Um, at the end of all those, the ministers and, and, and congregation would join together and say, Lord, have mercy upon us and write all these laws in our hearts, we beseech thee. So we pray in the passive voice for the Lord to do something for these hearts, for no surgeon can take his own heart out and replace it with a new one. Have mercy upon the whole church, Cramner would pray, and so rule the hearts of thy chosen servant. Give thy heavenly grace, especially to this congregation here present, 
that with meek heart and due reverence we may hear and receive thy holy word. The qualitative and positional quality, the positional placement of the heart, that with a meek heart we may hear and receive thy holy word. As one of his proper prefaces, a Acrolect would say, Grant, we beseech the Almighty God, that the words we have heard this day, the Scripture, with our outward ears, may through thy grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. It's not a cognitive, but something at the affective level. Um, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness of sins to all of them, and with hearty repentance and true faith turn unto him, Immediately, as I said, after the comfortable words, lift up your hearts. Uh, And after receiving communion uh, with the inspired gratitude in response to the grace received, we most heartily thank thee for that thou dost thou safe defeat us. In the closing benediction, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. In Jesus Christ our Lord. I bring that up and we'll close there and I'll go through Cramner's death with Latimer and Ridley next week along with the comfortable words. But the next time we go through the Holy Communion, next Sunday I suppose it'll be, to, to pay attention to the word heart, how often it appears and why. Contrast that to the mind. Contrast that to any grace, choice, merit paradigm. The heart does not choose. The heart does not have a cognitive assent. There's something else which happens to us which runs like a red thread where grace, choice, merit is totally upended. And you don't even turn it around. It's simply something completely new, something which is simply done, where there is a work outside of us which inspires gracious love in return. Um, that he loved, uh, we, we love only because he first loved us. And the glory of God is his love to us while you're yet sinning for those of us who are ungodly. So let us pray. Lord, um, as we begin to think about your servant Cramner, um, I pray that these words so humbly and uh, uh, weakly offered would be grafted, as he prayed, inwardly in our hearts so that we may be strengthened to uh, be loved by you, to love you in response, um, and to love others with a living and lively faith. Um, Come, Lord, and be present, living, and active to us. In Jesus' name, amen.